I'm Anna Abramovska. And I'm Natasha Chandran. And this is No One, a podcast that explores the distorted narratives of our postmodern society. If you like our content, please remember to subscribe and check out our website, which is www.no-an.net. In this episode, Natasha and I will be exploring culture through our experience with displacement and belonging as migrants and now citizens of Australia, as well as delving deeper into how the cultures we were born into have shaped how we now perceive the words culture and belonging. We also ask ourselves whether the idea of a fixed identity is possible, especially in the current environment of constant flux. This episode is recorded on Gadigal land, so before we begin, we would like to pay respects to the traditional custodians of this land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, who have looked after these lands and water for tens of thousands of years. We acknowledge that this land was stolen from them and that sovereignty has never been ceded. The places we are born come back. They disguise themselves as migraines, stomach aches, insomnia. They are the way we sometimes wake, falling, fumbling for the bedside lamp. Certain everything we've built has gone in the night. We become strangers to the places we are born. They will not recognize us, but we will always recognize them. They are marrow to us. They are bred into us. If we turned inside out, there would be maps cut into the wrong side of our skin, just so we could find our way back. Except cut wrong side into my skin are not canals and train tracks and a boat, but always you. This is Natasha reading an excerpt from Daisy Johnson's Everything Under. Hello, humans. Welcome to our first episode. Hi, Natasha. Hi, Anna. How are you? I'm good. Yes. Thank you, everyone, for carving out a little bit of your time to listen to us. Yes, thank you. Um, I think Anna and I both found this episode particularly challenging because we wanted to find a neat, coherent way to describe culture and belonging, which is impossible because culture and belonging are multifaceted, complex, and not singular experiences. Yeah, we realized, I think, very quickly that it was virtually impossible to talk about culture and belonging without talking about ourselves. Mm. And in saying that, we realized that at the same time, we also didn't really have the luxury, you know, unlike humans that come from the status quo, white dominant Western cultures, Mm. to talk about ourselves without contextualizing our experience to our histories and where we came from. Yeah, I think being non-white in Australia as an Australian is still confounding to a lot of people. I've learned through my 10 years of being in Australia that I always have to explain my existence because I don't present as what most people think an Australian should look like. Mm, Which is very strange considering Australia's migration history, right? Mm. I mean, everyone here except our indigenous peoples are from somewhere. Mm. I mean, they came from somewhere. Mm. And lest we forget white Australia policy, (laughs) but let's just not go there. (laughs) Yeah, not today. Another episode. Yes. So everyone, let me tell you a little bit about Anna, how Anna and I met. Um, I think we met three years ago, right? I think it was, I think it's four now. Oh my God. So strange because it feels like it's been a lot longer. I know, I know. 
We met at Sydney Uni in our literature unit, and I think <laughs> the rest course. was pretty much history, right? Yeah. <laughs> but really, when Anna and I met, we were both in this transitional phase of calling into question everything we were once certain of. And I think your 20s generally are a period of you know growth, chaos, uncertainty, where you're constantly trying to figure out your place in this world. And if I could describe my 20s in one all-encapsulating word, it would be a whirlwind. Mm, that's interesting, a whirlwind, I think. <laughs> and yeah, I think that in that case, I think we were experiencing the same kind of weather conditions. <laughs> <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's really interesting that both you and I mm -hmm. had arrived in Sydney at the same age. I think we were like 18, 19 and in the same year. Yeah, that's right. And it, it's very serendipitous and also bizarre that we used to go to that same cafe, Jet Cafe, the QVB. Oh, Jet Cafe, yes. Oh, my God, yes, at the time. We didn't know any better. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So true. Now I wouldn't go to the city unless you pay me money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, and, you know, we probably did pass each other, like, unbeknownst to us that... We would meet each other seven years later. Oh, my God. Yes. Yes. And it's interesting because we had moved back to Sydney after a longer period of being away. Mm. I think um, I think you had gone to Malaysia after yes. your marriage disintegrated and mm. had then moved to Perth, right? Yes. Yeah. And you had gone to Macedonia with a one-way ticket after <laughs> not feeling Sydney anymore. Yeah. Do you think we both left because Sydney just felt like it would swallow you up and spit you out? Yeah. Oh, I think I had felt that, you know, the social isolation that migrants usually feel. Mm. And I'm not, I, I mean, it's not really about finding and making friends. I mean, mm. you, we all do that. But for me, it was about finding my people. Mm. And I think after a while of being in um like in a new city you mm. kind of need to find your yeah. tribe yes and um you know just people that you can relate to and on top of that i don't really think that sydney is built in that way i mean mm. the social architecture of this city is centered around work mostly Yes, absolutely. I mean, I grew up in a fairly smallish town in Malaysia, just like you in Macedonia, where mm. you know everyone kind of knew everyone. <laughs> and Sydney isn't anything like that. And I think uh, I felt there was a value difference between me and the city in the city at the time. And leaving felt like the only way forward. Mm, yeah, it's so true. So Natasha and I have this. Uh, very mystical <laughs> <laughs> parallels in our lives. Yes, we do. So we had both left Sydney at the time, like at the same time, but mm. then we had both decided to come back. And not only that, we had dis both decided to come back to university at the age of 27. Yes. After feeling disillusioned with our careers, our relationships, and mm. I think um, to a large extent ourselves mm. i think if anything that period um at least for me is defined by questioning and doubting everything i've ever known mm. yeah um you know any creative output that i've 
personally loved and gained wisdom and insight from were always the kinds that were born out of struggle and discomfort. Mm. This podcast came from this place where we were trying to redefine ourselves and our understanding of the world around us and our place in it. And I think the idea of belonging is inextricably linked to the people you care deeply about. And for me, it wasn't just bound up in geography and culture. For me, it's tied up in relationality Mm. and relating to you about your lived experiences and seeing mine through them. I was able to understand my lived experiences. Mm, Yeah, I I totally agree. Yeah, I, I think this podcast is a product of the two of us, like, questioning, challenging Mm. all the narratives that society had conditioned us to believe were true. Mm. And our resistance to fit into a particular mold became, I don't know, like a very comfortable Mm. and a very nice thing Mm -hmm. after meeting each other. Yes. Uh, Because I think we we, we figured out, even though we came from very different spaces, my liberation was that was somehow bound up in your liberation mm. and through our mutual understanding of each other and our histories we were able to work together to unshackle ourselves and belong yeah it's like what leela watson and i think she's an indigenous activist and academic says and i'm paraphrasing here if you've come here to save me <laughs> off but if you've come because your liberation is bound with mine, then let us work together. Yeah, that's well put. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so in saying that, I think that was the beginning of a great romance. Absolutely. <laughs> so yes, we hope you um, enjoy this exploration of um, madness. Anna was born in Macedonia. She lived the first 18 years of her life there before emigrating to Australia. Anna, what about living in Macedonia made you question the duality of belonging and non-belonging? So, um, technically, Mm. uh, I was born in Yugoslavia. Um, I grew up in Macedonia, Mm. I mean, without moving because Yugoslavia had ceased to exist. And now, technically, I love that word. Mm. (laughs) You know how it means according to facts, but it usually has this kind of argumentative connotation. That's right. Not really. Yeah. Well, technically, Macedonia, the Macedonia that I grew up in doesn't Mm. really exist anymore. It's North Macedonia now. So I don't know. I think I was a child in a very complicated, fluid space. <laughs> yeah, and an adult still in a very complicated space, I would say. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's <laughs> definitely still true, <laughs> especially now. <laughs> yeah, and um, even though Macedonia had separated peacefully from Yugoslavia, I think... Mm. Almost um, everyone had family and friends that were dispersed through the Balkans. Mm. I think in the Balkans during this transitional period, um, the youth, and I mean, I can only talk about the youth, Mm. um, was faced with the horrors of war, westernization, and the impetus to solidify Mm. national identities. And I think that created this drive to just other each other. Mm. Um, I mean... 
the West, you know how the West had set this standard that to exist and be acknowledged, you had to define yourself against the other. Yeah, that's right. You have to create mm. the other. But on top of that, I think the right to self-determination as well has always been contested for Macedonians. Mm. And our status was always referred to as, I mean, I think still is, as the Macedonian question. Mm. So I think that that informed or must have informed my way of thinking about belonging to some extent always as a question. Mm, but never quite as an answer. Yes, yes. And you were a child when these moments in life-defining transformations were taking place. And I know from what you've said and told me, you know, in our various conversations, you had trouble understanding belonging because you were in a country that was in the midst of trying to define its own identity. Mm, yeah, that's true. And I think childhood is a very productive space. Yeah, you know, that's right. In, in which you kind of first become aware of what are the determining categories for identity, whether it be mm. gender, sexuality, class, nationality. Mm, that's so true. As a kid, space in which you grow up is where you engage and interact with whatever is happening around you to better understand those categories and perhaps form an identity, right? Mm, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, for example... Um, I don't know, I was aware of the violence that was happening around me and I wasn't yet able to understand how that was affecting or will affect me and my future. Mm. I think, I guess, in the Balkans, as with any society that has at some point um, been marked by violence, we all have these collective memories and trauma from what transpired that I think we're... Still healing from. Mm. But I think the individual stories also happen in those in between moments, mm. moments that are not solely marked by war or violence, but also by friendships, shared experiences, and community. Mm. And so belonging or non belonging for me were not defined against the backdrop of nationality, culture, or geography. I mean, for me, but mostly through people, ideas, and um, relationships. Mm, absolutely. I can, you know, completely relate. It sounds like we had very similar childhoods, albeit very different. My childhood in Malaysia was marked by my difference. Mm. And I was made aware, aware very early on, I think when I was seven or eight, of this difference through the color of my skin not being the right color. I think I remember at school, I was often called Kaling, which is mm. a derogatory term used to refer to people of South Asian backgrounds in Malaysia by other Malaysians. Mm -hmm. So it was made very apparent to me that I was somehow different. I didn't know how, but I knew at a very young age that I did not belong. Mm. So, in, so even in Malaysia, there's this center, mm. kind of like a dominant group against which you were other? Yes. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. So would you say that um, living in a country like Malaysia, like uh, multiracial, multicultural, and of course multilingual, has solidified your understanding of culture? Hmm. Good question. 
I think, um, if anything, it has made my ambivalence to it more pronounced. We, you know, usually think that diversity is only about inclusion, but in my experience, it was also about exclusion. Though growing up, the sentiment was always about one Malaysia, racial harmony and unity, but is also still, and I think still is, very steeped in institutionalized racism. And we see this with public universities like UITM, University Technology, MAR, systematically excluding the admittance of Chinese and Indian students solely because of mm-hmm. their race. And that's just one example. Mm-hmm. So, you know, growing up in as a minority in Malaysia, and Malaysian Indians make up 7% of the population, and most of our my immigration to Malaysia was different to that of other races. Uh, as we were mostly brought by the British. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So from a very young age, I was constantly told to go back to where I came from, a place I've not even been to, India. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Even though my family have been in Malaysia for three generations. So I think for me, it was very clear that as a child, this place here was not a given. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a birthright of which I had an incontestable claim to. You know, it's funny when you think we when we think of culture, you immediately associate it with where one's from, one's citizenship. Mm, so true. And for me, that realization that my citizenry was now negotiable on a cultural and social level solidified this understanding that I just didn't belong there. Mm. You know how you and me we always talk about this need. Mm. to explain and justify why we had decided to leave mm. our countries of birth. I mean, which is in itself an ordeal. Mm-hmm. And um, not that you should explain yourself as to why you had left, but would you say that this um, othering or this position that you felt you were in was a significant factor? Yes, mm, absolutely. You know, like I said, my parents lived in the time, and to a large extent, my sister and I as well lived in the time of the rise of Malay ethno-nationalism. So we were groomed by my mother at a very young age that leaving was the only option. Mm. If not, our ambitions would be stifled. And, you know, from what you've told me, you left for similar reasons, albeit different circumstances, right? Mm, yeah, that's that's true. I think um, I think the the effects of what had transpired in the Balkans were felt uh, mostly, I think, in the destruction of our education and economy. Mm. I mean, as a kid, you don't really think about that, but then you, I mean, as you have to go to uni or you have to go to school, you kind of realize mm. um, what's going on, mm. and. You had a lot of people who saw this period of transition and uncertainty as an opportunity, mm. in, maybe in a bit of a negative way, like corruption. You have war profiteers and I'm all kinds of illegal organizations. And that kind of shifted the value system because that now meant that they were, um, I don't know, um, what people were looking up to. I mean, not everyone, of course. Mm. But I can confidently say that anyone that has insane, exceeding amounts of wealth Mm. in Macedonia is sitting on blood money Mm. or is directly implicated in the current state state of affairs of our country. (laughs) (laughs) But back to your question. (laughs) It's my little rant. (laughs) Go for it. 
I think I definitely felt that I couldn't fulfill my ambitions if I had stayed. I mean, not that I have now, but... Hey, we're here now. <laughs> yeah, true that. <laughs> uh, but I would like to talk about... <laughs> I'm just changing the topic. <laughs> but I would like to talk about this uh, idea that you just threw in about citizenship and how that usually has a very strong link mm. with culture. Mm. But in your case, you now actually don't have mm. the Malaysian citizenship anymore, right? Yes. Yes, that's right. So Malaysia doesn't allow for dual citizenship, which meant that when I had accepted my Australian citizenship, I had to forfeit my Malaysian citizenship. So yeah, it was a bittersweet exchange, which means once again, I can't go back to where I came from. Mm. <laughs> well, it's not funny. <laughs> it is not. <laughs> it's a bit sad. Yeah, but okay, then okay, let, 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 let us think if this would make sense. Mm. So now if we consider the same assumption that culture is inextricably linked to your citizenship, mm. does that make Australian culture your culture? Mm. Mm. Not quite. I think in terms of legality, yes, but culturally, I, I, I do not feel like I have a claim to Australianness. I mean, do you? Yeah, not really. And I think also it depends. I think I asked this question a bit wrong because I think it also depends. Um, what is meant by Australian? Yes, yes. Right? Yeah. I don't know, but I personally find it very strange when Australian culture is always equated with shrimps on the barbie, I don't know, crocodile, dundee, dandy, <laughs> what is it? Yes, dundee. I know, the Melbourne cup charade. Yes. I mean, what about the 75,000 years of culture that we have but somehow fail to acknowledge as if there's this collective amnesia when it comes to our indigenous peoples. Yes, yes, absolutely. You know, it's almost impossible for us, and especially as migrants, to claim Australianness. I think without acknowledging that we're living on, living and existing on stolen land. And for you and me, especially, we can say that we've lost the ability to lay a claim on almost any culture because of the displacement. Mm, because of the displacement that we both had experienced, right? Mm, mm. Yeah, it's so true. I think when we first started to talk about this episode, we had decided to explore hybridity mm. and a dualism in, you know, this dualism in belonging or not belonging mm. and how non-belonging is only understood through what we imagine or understand belonging to be. Mm. But it was very difficult to unpack those ideas without talking about ourselves. And hence, this episode is a bit different to what's to come in the future. Yes, the yes that's true, listeners. It is very true. Very early on, when we met, we asked ourselves this question, if we don't belong in here, where do we belong? You know, mm. we're not here, we're not there, then where where do we go? <laughs> where do we go? Where do we go? 
And I think we struggle to find a single all-encompassing answer because I think we were asking the wrong question. Mm-hmm. Just the idea that things have to be defined as belonging or non-belonging doesn't allow for the in-between space where belonging and non-belonging exist at the same time. And it really is such a shame because this this site is where most lived experiences take place. Yeah, that's completely true. And I think I think the reason why we have this problem is because um, to actually express this idea of mm. that you can belong and not belong mm. at the same time, mm. and that's fine. Mm. I think it's because language in itself is limiting. Mm. Because, you know, it forces us to constantly define things in terms of duality, mm. um, you know, in in other words, you know, my belonging can only be understood through an under, through an understanding of non-belonging. Yes, and I think we know from our lived experience that that is not that cut and dry. It's not that neat. Yeah, not at all. And it is in this liminal space where transformation and growth takes place, especially for people like us. I think for both you and I, we carry belonging and non-belonging within us concurrently. I mean, we can only speak of or for our experiences in our birth countries up until the time we left. And we've since lost that claim to speak of Malaysian-ness or Macedonian-ness now that we don't exist there geographically. I mean, we're now hybrids. And, you know, when we talk about this... um idea of hybrid or um, saying that we are hybrid um, it doesn't I mean it doesn't mean that I am a museum (laughs) (laughs) that my body is this side of fixity or collection of this immovable experiences like Mm. I'm a collection of things that are on display that's just stagnant and not moving yeah exactly like i have these bits of malaysia this or these bits of macedonia and this mm. of australia it's not like it's not like uh, yeah it's not like a museum it's not like a fixed space and even right now i think while we're discussing these experiences i think transformation is taking place absolutely <laughs> see narrative therapy works <laughs> And yeah, I mean, we're not monoliths. Our, you know, our temporality is the present. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by this is as migrant queer women, we're definitely not at the center, the standard, the status quo. For people like us, we're forced in the present and continuously, we're continuously negotiating our place in it. And I think we we have this very laden awareness that our environment is and will always be changing. So we're constantly learning and unlearning concepts, social cues, and culture at large. Yeah, and you know how I think that's where you get this um, stereotypes mm. for migrants that they're very adaptable mm. and very resilient. Mm. And I think it's because they have to exist in this space. Mm. You know, they have to always be present i mean we always have to be present because we need to observe in order to adapt and survive absolutely yeah and 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 such i think being hybrid is a productive space Mm. i mean 
it took me, in all honesty, it took me a while to see this experience as a positive and a productive one mm. because um, we constantly tend to define ourselves against this um, Western cultures that have a very clear understanding of who they are mm. <laughs> you know you constantly like you constantly want to move towards the center yes. I mean you you watch tv and you you yes. never see yourself or stuff like yeah, that yeah you never do see us I mean you rarely see yourself represented exactly yeah. and you're like it's changing but very slowly very slowly yeah. and yeah you you constantly try to maybe do you think that you're gonna get there yeah I know <laughs> but it's like oh, a, the illusion the illusion yeah the myth <laughs> And I think it's something that you said that helped me see it as a a positive mm. uh, experience. I mean, uh, not just positive, but that I had agency and this is a productive space. And you said, um, I think something like this, <laughs> I'm definitely paraphrasing, but you said something, the lines that our lack of a fixed, rigidly defined culture is our culture. Mm. Yes, I remember that. And, you know, this experience that you and I just talked about, it isn't just merely an experience. It is also an affect, mm. right? It's a feeling or feelings that we once could not name because we didn't have the tools to understand what it was and is. And I think our friendship and collaboration was instrumental in naming this. Oh, for sure. Like you're you're absolutely right because um we I mean, how much have we talked about this? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I think we've talked this to death, haven't yeah, we? And and, yeah. and not just talked about it, but and you know how at the same time we were reading all this philosophers. Yeah, a lot of post cultural I mean post structuralists yeah. writings and Homie Baba, yeah. I think all of that just helped us understand, and we were like, "Oh my God, I can't believe that you went through the same thing as I did." Yeah, but I know. But the experience is totally different. I'm like post so post Yugoslavia. Yes, you're... like in Malaysia, so far away, tropical country, multicultural, multiracial. But yeah. you know, it has its own sets of you know set of problems yeah and we did it so far so it's uh, so much that we actually um remember we had this project that we wanted to do to write a short story where i would write the malaysian experience and you would write the macedonian experience because oh we, yes oh yes that's remember? right we imagine we felt the aid that i had the agency and we, comfortable enough so comfortable yeah. yeah yeah this yeah, is crazy absolutely. but um natasha <laughs> I'm going to ask you a question. <laughs> oh, so, here we go. For the sake of our listeners, can you, no pressure, <laughs> try to explain what does being hybrid mean to you? Gee, thanks, Anna. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think um, fundamentally my hybridity is tied to the understanding of myself through others. I think as human beings, we're social creatures, right? And mm -hmm. to live in a world as sovereign entities divorced from everyone else is, at least I think, it's naive and false. Mm, I agree. To define myself as solely Malaysian against all other nationalities or 
a woman against man, these these dichotomies, you know, they, they don't allow for the rich tapestry of human experience, which happens in the in-between, mm-hmm. in, in the liminality, in mm-hmm. the liminal space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think the profundity of human experience is through our relationships to one another. And in our case, it was through our friendship. Mm-hmm. And it was through engaging with you about your lived experiences that I could then contemplate and untangle my own and vice versa. Mm. Yeah, so true. Well said. You did that very well. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> no I had to try. <laughs> yeah, I think it um, It kind of made me think of uh, Rumi and one of his poems. He says, um, beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I will meet you there. Mm. Yeah, gets me all the time. So humans, let's all meet there. Yeah, let's meet there. And if you like uh, any of this or if any of this resonated with you and you would like to share your stories with us, um, just feel free to go to go to our website, which is www.no-an.net from where you can send us an email mm-hmm. or you can just go to our instagram page at noanist which is at no.an.ist mm-hmm. and in our next episode called sleep natasha and i look at how in our 24 7 society sleep is the ultimate anomaly a dead zone for productivity and consumption the last standing boogeyman <laughs> for capitalist society So the constant attacks on sleep and the never-ending quest to modify it should not come as a surprise. So what can we learn from sleep as a tool for resistance? What is at stake when we conceptualize sleep as switching off? How can we use disengagement to become better activists? Stay tuned. Bye. Bye.